Welcome to the Global Visions podcast. My name is Michelle Alice, and I'm an associate editor for the Brown Journal of World Affairs, a biannual journal of international relations and foreign policy produced at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. The podcast seeks to explore international affairs and policy issues via a series of interviews with distinguished academics, policymakers, and activists. We are honored to be hosting our first student spotlight feature of the podcast today, Justin Ahn. Justin Ahn is a high school sophomore at Deerfield Academy who is passionate about political science and international relations. He previously hosted Election Day, a monologue podcast discussing the 2020 election and its aftermath. And he currently hosts Between the Headlines, an interview podcast that deconstructs important dynamics in American democracy and society. His research adopts a breadth-first approach, taking theories from various disciplines and applying them to, to cross-national sets of empirical data. Justin, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. It's an honor. I'm going to jump right into the first question. So to start off, can you tell us a little bit about how you became involved in researching democratic backsliding and why you're interested in this topic? So for context, I'm 16 years old. That means I was 10 years old when Donald Trump was elected in 2016. Before that, I wasn't very politically aware or engaged in any way. So that means for basically the entirety of the time that I've been thinking about politics, America has been in this period of democratic decline and backsliding. This is what forms my political experience along with, I think, a lot of other members of Gen Z. So. I think previously, Americans had a notion that America is the world champion of democracy, the leader of the free world. And for a very long time, sort of since World War II, there's been an idea that the world is moving towards more and more freedom, that we're moving toward progress. But I haven't been a part of that for my entire life. I've been hearing the reverse, that somehow the natural way of things is going the wrong way. So I've always had a lot of curiosity as to, A, what things were before, and B, what led to things being the way they are in my time. When I was, I think, even younger, Korea, which is where I live, our first female president, Park Geun-hye, was impeached. So that was obviously a lot of turmoil, again, with respects to democratic institutions and political power. So I think that's what really informs my interest in democratic backsliding, this idea of why are democracies the way they are in my time? So I think even more than a very specific political study, this is really a study of my generation, what institutions are like today since 2010. The Election Day podcast that you spoke about earlier, that was kind of a knee-jerk reaction to a lot of the chaos that was happening in the 2020 election. And it was me just trying to figure things out. I was very disoriented I think you'll hear that through the progression of the various episodes that I was making. But in the process of sort of figuring this out, I wanted to do this in a more methodical way. And once Trump was, I guess, not removed from office, but voted out in 2021-ish, that's when I wanted to say, hey, let's do a look back. Let's do a proper academic study on all these things I was living through. So that's where my interest comes from. 
Perfect. Thank you so much for for answering that question, Justin. Um, My second question is related to your research and how you conduct your research. What, if any, methodological difficulties did you encounter while gathering your data? And what have been your favorite and most challenging parts of conducting your research? Yeah, so my favorite part is definitely being able to go through a lot of the literature, reading landmark studies in this field, you know, people like uh, Spolik or Klassen, all these figures I'm reading have really amazing work and theories. And I feel like I've really gotten to know them and what they're proposing that just provides so much insight. And I've absolutely loved that. Matthew Graham, who is a scholar of political science, who really formed the backbone of one of the facets of my research in that he theorized how political polarization interacts with democracy. I actually got to interview him for my podcast and have a lengthy discussion with him. So that was like talking to one of my heroes and being able to understand the nuances of a lot of different theories regarding backsliding. So that was certainly my favorite part of it. I think the most challenging was the methodological aspect that you pointed to. A lot of what I'm researching, things like nationalism, things like perceived threat. These are traditionally really historiographical topics. You you have a lot more qualitative, philosophical, theoretical work on it. So it was really hard to find ways to try to create quantitative measures of that. And I had very limited options. I had to try to, the way I eventually solved that methodologically was going about and finding different survey sources. But even that was difficult because there aren't many surveys available. You have to corroborate them to make sure that your variables are aligning. You have the right countries for each of the different surveys, for each of the different variables. So the beauty and uniqueness of this study is that it's able to use empirical data, but that was also its greatest difficulty. Thank you, Justin. Well, I applaud you for your in-depth research and the amount of analysis that you've put into it. I can see the the results in, in the paper that that I read of yours. Going off of this uh, paper that you wrote, as you explained, the administration in the past four years have utilized all three variables that you identified. So nationalism, polarization, and demographic threat. Based on your findings, if we were to talk about any prospective political leader, what are the warnings of a prospective political leader that is feeding off of these factors before they potentially come into come into office? I think number one for sure is the use of fear and the use of an enemy, the construction of a totem, because that then says, hey, I'm the only one who can solve the situation. It creates an opportunity for authoritarians to justify their rule. We've seen this not only with the US, but to me, the prime example is someone like Duterte in the Philippines, the use of you know, terrorism and disorder to say, I am the order candidate, despite the fact that he's been ruling forever and the crisis never seems to go away. Now, of course, political candidates do make use of fear in a way that can be legitimate. For example, a fear of an economic crisis or the fear of, you know, for instance, Russia, there there are legitimate opponents, but typically when that has a human face, when that's another social group, that's very much creating an us versus them narrative that is incredibly dangerous. Absolutely. Thank you so much for, for explaining those, those red flags that we see in, in potential political leaders. My next question is 
related to a line in your report that stood out to me that says the public can enable democratic backsliding without explicit support for an authoritarian alternative by simply refusing, but simply by refusing to defend liberal democracy, instead favoring pursuing other political priorities. In light of this, what steps do you think must be taken to defend liberal democracy by anybody, by the general public, by administrations, by our government officials, what steps must be taken to defend our democracy? Absolutely. So like you said, to me, the biggest problem is that we're putting policy over democracy. We're putting, for example, economic issues. We have a lot of voters who say this justifies a temporary hit to our democratic quality in favor of this particular issue that I want. And so the way we fix that is we make democracy the number one issue, or at least slightly more of a priority. Citizens should at some point be able to say, I'm going to vote for that candidate, not because they're going to deliver some legislation, but because they're going to protect our democratic institutions. In a lot of countries, if you look throughout history, democracy has been the key issue. If you told someone in a lot of these post-communist countries that people are going to care about some legislation more than democracy, they'd be shocked. And yet that's what happens with complacence in a lot of quote-unquote, consolidated democracies. So I think what we need is organizations and uh, political movements that explicitly advocate for democracy. I think now they've become slightly more of a partisan movement, but the Lincoln Project initially was a group of Republicans who said, we're going to put democracy above party. The same with the Renew America movement, um, who I got to talk to through my podcast, a group of largely Republicans who are going around endorsing candidates, regardless of party status, because of their stance on pro-democratic issues. So we've seen a lot of very powerful movements. For example, the Working Families Party on the left with socioeconomic issues, the same with the Tea Party on the right, that aren't political parties in, in the sense of Democratic or Republican, but that advocate for issues and stances. I want to see the same thing for democracy, to have a democracy policy vote. And I think that will really change things if people prioritize it. Thank you so much, Justin, for giving us those methods of saving a, a backsliding democracy. I have another question. In your paper, you mentioned that backsliding has a statistically insignificant relationship with perceived backsliding. I was wondering if you could elaborate on this. Why and in what circumstances do people perceive stable democracies to be in decline or unstable democracies to be strong? Yeah. So in particular, the thing I'm looking at is when backsliding does happen, but that has a negligible effect on perceived backsliding. In other words, democracy is getting worse, but people don't notice it. And that aligns with this theory that I came across, which is stealth. And stealth is what it sounds like. It's the idea that politicians can enact backsliding sneakily, that they can make systemic changes that maybe aren't a news headline, even if they have significant impacts, and people aren't aware of it until it's too late. And by the time people noticed that this is allowing politicians to stay in power for too long without consequences, at that point, those systemic changes have become too entrenched for the voting body to really reverse it in a concerted effort. And so the counter to that, obviously, is what you were alluding to earlier in being very politically aware and looking at what is the real footprint of the changes that are happening. There are a lot of things, for example, voting rights legislation, gerrymandering, that aren't headline issues, 
But, you know, a decade down the road, that really impacts the way that democratic institutions are shaped. So that's basically what that research is pointing to, which is that backsliding doesn't always happen in a coup, a takeover, or even in a way that's covered. It can happen with no one noticing. Thank you so much for answering that question, Justin. My next question is related to what we have seen in the past and potentially what we're seeing now. So your paper really focuses on Donald Trump and how Trump's election was really a shocking moment in world history. I mean, we're talking about a president that camp- that campaigned on the basis of what you said, fear, xenophobia, and white supremacy. And he augmented these feelings of demographic threat in a really hyper-nationalistic way. And it really effectively polarized the country. Has this trend been seen in past administrations? Looking at the immediate past, how were Obama and Bush and potentially now Joe Biden contributors to Democratic backsliding? Yeah, I don't have a great question or great answer to that question because I've been studying this from a comparative political lens rather than really looking at the American political system. What I can say, you know, without thorough knowledge of presidential administrations, is that there have been lead ups to the kind of Trumpian movement. The Tea Party and Sarah Palin back in Obama's re-election, that was a precursor to the Trumpian movement. And, you know, we talk a lot about Fox News and Tucker Carlson now, but all their rhetoric comes from these kind of quieter alt-right media outlets that have been fostered, like, you know, conservative radio for a very long time. There's a great Freedom House report, I think, by Slipowitz, who I refer to in my research. And they say that American democracy is in decline for three facets, the first being racism and discrimination, the second being the influence of money and corruption in our political system, and the third being political polarization, which is a byproduct of gerrymandering. And so I think when you look at backsliding from this very broad view, right, Freedom House in particular doesn't really focus on institutions, but they say all these problems are affecting our political system. I think that kind of degradation has been going on for a very long time. We always talk about money in politics. That was Bernie Sanders' whole thing for, for several election cycles. And so I think that kind of systemic trend makes the rise of someone like Trump less surprising. Thank you so much for, for answering that question, the domestic standpoint. And so you said that you focus more on comparative politics. So my next question would be, in your paper, you mentioned how consolidation of power by autocrats such as Xi Jinping in China and Vladimir Putin in Russia and the rise of populism in former communist countries such as Hungary and Poland and illiberalism exhibited in Latin American countries such as Venezuela and Brazil. But you focus your case study on the United States. So I'm curious to hear a little bit more about this comparative perspective of democratic backsliding. What other cases have you specifically analyzed and explored? And how were those cases similar or dissimilar to the United States? So I have a little bit of exposure to some cases, which I'll talk about on my podcast. I did a little bit of research first and then interviewed the UN uh, human rights uh, rapporteur for Belarus. And that's where we have very, you know, centralized power. We have an authoritarian leader who's been kind of ruling since the post-communist era, absolutely, you know, censoring, clamping down on dissent. I also have a lot of personal interest, though I haven't researched it in Hong Kong, where we've seen, you know, the takeover kind of against public opinion. 
um, by the Chinese government, despite a pre-existing guarantee of democracy to some extent. What I would say is that, you know, there are some countries like the U.S., like consolidated democracies, such as Britain or France. But compared to some of these other countries that I've been looking at, there is a big difference in the sense that the U.S. is a backsliding democracy, not an illiberal democracy. Initially, I sought out trying to understand democracies that aren't real democracies, where the voter doesn't matter, where elections are just shows. But what I found is that America is not there yet. In America, the vote does still matter. And that's why it's interesting to analyze these dynamics of backsliding is because the pub public and the voting public has such great agency in the U.S., the emphasis is less so in manipulating institutions to override public opinion, but actually trying to manipulate public opinion itself. How It's not how can you impose authoritarianism against the will of the public, but how can you make Americans want democracy less? And so to me, that's what's very concerning from a cross-national perspective, is that in America, democracy could fall from the bottom up. Thank you so much, Justin, for, for providing that that cross-national comparative perspective on, on democratic backsliding. My next question, it's based on a survey by Forum Policy that showed that the most commonly shared belief among insurrectionists is the idea that white people are being replaced via non-white illegal immigration, also known as the grand replacement theory, with 75% of respondents adhering to this ideology. And as you know, in your report, Trump capitalized off nationalist rhetoric and white grievance. Now, I want to make sure I, I, I phrase this question correctly. In light of these findings, how do you interpret your analysis that demographic changes are negatively correlated with hostilities? So basically, how what is there a net benefit or harm in immigration because it could lead to a potential insurrectionist minority? Or does immigration actually pose a benefit for democracy? So the short answer to that question is that ethnic diversity helps democracy. This is what my research found. Now, this actually surprised me too, because of what you described. And I actually set out defining this variable because I wanted to show the reverse, that a demographic threat can make the majority or the ethnic minority anti-democratic. But I found that that's not true. Now, what is true is that perceived ethnic threat the idea that there's this minority who's going to come after our social status, that does correlate with greater hostility and, and therefore with less democracy. But what other scholars have theorized and what I tried or what I think I did here find is that actual threat operates differently. An actual threat in this case, meaning uh, a net change in ethnic diversity and what actually happens is that when you have a more pluralistic society, you have a lot of positive interaction between those groups, especially if they're distributed relatively evenly and can interact with each other. And that breaks down racial prejudice, that builds intercommunication and breaks down systems of racial discrimination that are anti-democratic. So on the one hand, we have this effect of tribalism as manifested in the great replacement theory that you're talking about. But that's more than counteracted by positive interaction between people of different identities. And that's what causes the positive change in democratic quality. 
And so this to me is a very encouraging sign because as, you know, in a place like America and all over the world, we have greater diversity. That does not mean that democracies are going to get worse because we will have those kinds of positive interactions. The problem is not diversity. It's the creation of an illusion of a threat posed by diversity by certain types of rhetoric. And I think this surprised me too. And I think it'll be good if a lot of people can get out of the mode of thinking that change inevitably causes the feeling of threat, that the decrease of a majority inevitably hardens them and makes them more hostile. I don't think that that's true. I think that's the mechanism of media that's only achieved through through political rhetoric. In the U.S., the great example is that Trump supposedly appealed to people in the Midwest by talking about building the wall and keeping out Mexican immigrants. This is not where the immigrants are coming. They're coming into states like California, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, these areas that are actually leaning more and more blue that are going against Trumpianism. And so what that shows that people in the Midwest are being affected by this demographic change is that it's not the actual entry of immigrants that matters. It's the creation of a perception of fear. Thank you so much, Justin, for for answering that that question so thoroughly on this perception of of fear. That really is what is a threat. My next question is related to this nationalistic rhetoric and these nationalistic feelings. So you explain how nationalism positively correlates with democratic backsliding, meaning that it leads to democratic backsliding. When I was reading this, it seemed counterintuitive to the idea and definition of democracy, where elected representatives govern on behalf of people from a state. So is this idea of a state then harmful to democracy? Should we reject the idea of statehood in order to prevent extreme nationalism? Yeah, part of the difficulty is that, you know, defining nationalism is hard. This is something that I struggled with. I don't think that the idea of a state is harmful to democracy. I don't think the idea that you derive people power from the public is harmful. But the thing that I tested is actually not nationalism, but what I would label national order orientation. And national order orientation I defined as the extent to which national order trumps democracy, that we are going to put national unity and stability above sort of democratic concerns. And so I did that just because I thought trying to test nationalism would be very elusive and difficult. So I did create a more precise definition. So in a sense that I don't think this is that surprising of a claim that when you value something over democracy, democracy is hurt, sort of like we've seen with polarization earlier, same with demographic threat earlier. And so the reason this happens is that national order orientation, as I defined it, involves maintaining somewhat a cohesion, whether culturally, ethnically, or even in terms of political values within a state. So the words that I might associate with this are unity, stability, solidarity, identity, and assimilation. And those are the sorts of things that go against individual rights and individualism. This leads to the repression of factors that might be seen as de-unifying that go against the cohesion of the group and it prioritizes collective gain on behalf of the nation, which in some cases might involve detriment to a certain group or a certain individual. And so that's what causes these human rights violations and declines of democracy that 
I and previous scholars like Yazidzi have proven. Now, what I think you were talking about is a sort of different definition of nationalism that I would prefer to label belonging to a polity, belonging to a certain political unit. Now, some people like to label this civic nationalism, right? Nationalism that's not necessarily cultural, but about your sense as a citizen. The reason I don't like to label this nationalism is that belonging to a polity does not require a homogenous body in any way or any form of cohesion, whether that's about national culture or about political culture. I think belonging to a polity um, allows for a greater sense of deviation from the group. And so I think that, you know, which political scholars have outlined, I believe that that can be very helpful. Thank you, Justin, for differentiating between your various definitions of nationalism and what nationalism is and what it is, what, what it is seen as. One of my last questions, I have two more. So you wrote in your essay, this is kind of like a, a takeaway. What can we do? You wrote in your essay how voters would rather change stances on issues than change their actual candidate, as you were saying, that we're putting policy above democracy. What would you suggest for a regular, everyday voter in preserving democracy? Pay attention. And in particular, pay attention to changes in the rules of the game. This is what prevents stealth from happening. This is how, if backsliding ever does kick off, we'll be able to react and prevent it. There are certain things like legislation that always kind of oscillate back and forth, but there are certain things that happen every so often, right? Like redistricting, gerrymandering. This happens once every 10 years. And if we pay attention to those little things, the decisions that shape how all the other decisions will be made, I think that is incredibly crucial. So that's piece number one. Piece number two is once you know about these things, prioritize them. You have to do something with your vote to incentivize politicians and let them know, hey, this is what I care about. I'm watching you. If we say we care about democracy, but in the end, something else is always more important, that's what allows authoritarians to take power. I was talking about Duterte earlier. National order and security is important. And I think that's why he's been in power for so long as people in the Philippines think that way. And I get it. But democracy is also incredibly important. And at some point, that has to be weighed heavily enough that it drives the vote, that it basically says, if you're anti-democratic, you have no shot because that's how much we love democracy. So I think, number one, pay attention to changes in the rules. And number two, you have to care a lot about democracy. And sometimes that means going against your own policy interests. Thank you, Justin, for giving us some takeaways as to what regular voters can do to, pre to preserve our democracy. So my last question is, do you have any future plans for academic research generally or any plans for your future work on democracy issues? Yeah, I have a lot of things. I'm, I'm seeking to publish my current study, which is exciting. I do certainly want to continue learning about democracy because I think the, the spread and decline of democracy around the world is a narrative that's certainly going to continue through my adult life. And I think that's going to define the next era as it did the Cold War. And so I would love to continue. You asked earlier about the international aspect. I would love to do more case studies, 
maybe pick a certain country and really do a deep delve and maybe analyze more of the factors that I've been talking about. The thing I'm kind of missing at this stage is some quantitative skills. Like if I could know how to do time series analysis, that would certainly help a lot. I was kind of limited by the fact that I could only do regressions. So once I get to college and know more math, that'll help. One thing I'm very excited about is um, with my school history class, I'm planning on doing a, a big chunk of research on the Nuremberg trials, which I'm very interested in. Also a big democratic issue, the rule of law and how you apply that consistently. And finally, uh, on a non-academic note, but in terms of my broader interest in democracy and political issues, of course, my podcast is continuing to go. I'm looking at different facets of democracy, like the grassroots side of it, of course, the scholarly side of it, and a lot of other dimensions this season. And I'm going to continue trying to, I guess, learn from more perspectives of that. Thank you, Justin, for elaborating on your future plans and your further research. We are excited to see where your research takes you and what you end up discovering or analyzing in the future. Thank you so much. That concludes this episode of the Global Visions podcast hosted by the Brown Journal of World Affairs. Thank you, Justin, for giving us the opportunity to speak with us. And thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.